Hello and welcome to the Diversifying and Decolonising the University podcast. I'm Chris Lloyd. This podcast is put together by staff and students at the University of Hertfordshire in the UK. It explores diversifying and decolonising within higher education and looks at those terms in different contexts, subject areas and disciplines. In today's episode, we listen to Katerina Carvalho talk to Mark Martin about inclusive education and ed tech, among much else. Katerina is a senior lecturer in mathematics at the University of Hertfordshire, and Mark Martin is an assistant professor in computer science and educational practice at Northeastern University, London. Hi, Mark. Thank you so much for accepting our invitation. And I want to start just asking you, how would you define diversifying and decolonizing in the work that you do? Thank you for having me and really um, a pleasure to be on this uh, podcast. In terms of defining uh, diversity and decolonization, I think it's about how do we embed representation into these challenges. I think historically it's normally an afterthought or when uh, an event happens, we start to think about how did it happen rather than what did we put in the design process of how we education says about you know, in, when we look at academia literature, how many um, of that represents the world view or global view, or is it just the Western view? And then who are the voices that we prop up or historically prop up within these um, spares and arenas? And I think that it's about how do we bring more uh, representation to the literature and to the thought leadership and to the visionary rather than just getting those individuals just to talk about their lived experiences. I think it, 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 we need much more than that within these spaces. And hopefully that will eventually decolonize it by giving people more of a balanced view of how they see education across the whole world. Was, was that something that you had in mind when you wrote your most recent book, which is called My Teaching Routine? Yeah, so one of the things that I wanted to do with my teacher routine is to create a book that is then put into the arena of teaching and learning because, you know, historically what we find with a lot of black authors, especially in education, we are more pushed towards behaviour, looking at the inequalities. And don't get me wrong, these things are very important to put a spotlight on, but we still need more diversity when it comes to people talking about teaching and learning. And then when you look in a school setting, a lot of the teachers uh, that are teachers of colour are pushed more towards the pastoral, more towards the behaviour and management rather than the teaching and learning. You know, I really want to put a book that can inspire people to think about actually we need more diverse people talking about education from that lens. So actually, why do you think that happened? Why do you think that people of colour are more often associated with pastoral care is it to to have representation no i think it's just one of these things where when we think about culture capital uh, cultural relevancy and relatability i think there's a lot of issues that we probably can gravitate towards but that shouldn't be a self-fulfilling prophecy in the sense that just because you know you're good at working with people that you should now become a mentor or behavioral lead and then what you find is that these individuals are then put on the front line of all crises other than the school and that could be problematic in the sense that do 
you know, black teachers become bouncers for black kids because we're seen to be the mentors, the pastoral? Or is it that it's everyone's responsibility to support students in the school? And how do we look at and how do we perceive those people in management? How do we perceive people that are leading the education curriculum? And then again, is that education and curriculum innovative, creative, diverse and represent the school population? Going back to the original point of decolonization. And I mean, one of the things that you talk about in your book, uh, which relates to that, it's it's to have empathy in the connection with the students. And how how do you find that educators can have empathy towards people with a different background? So one of the things, or the biggest quote that I put into that chapter of connection is, is that the um, student buys into the teacher before the learning. And I think that once a student has a rapport or connection with that teacher, then they're more enticed to engage within the learning because they know that that teacher's invested in them, they can trust, it's a safe space. It's a thing where they won't be judged and teachers are then receptive, irrespective of that child, whether the whatever background that child comes from or how that whatever need that child might potentially have. And what I kind of draw on through that book is about that connection piece is that it's very important in terms of how we lead with empathy in terms of supporting our students and building those relationships that work within the classroom and outside of the classroom. One one of the things that you do throughout your book is that you don't call them students, you call them learners, which I thought it was very interesting. And you also talk about learners as co-teachers. And this, in a way, it comes with the things that we've been trying, which is like this reverse classroom or flipped classroom. And do you have you? This is something you did because you used to teach, right? In in secondary school, I mean. Do you have examples that you could share with us? It's funny because when I done my masters in um, education, I done this research in terms of communities in the Amazon and how the elders teach the youngers about the do's and don'ts and how to navigate certain things and you know when we look at this education system that we operate in there's so much that we need to part to students and to to get students on board with but it's about are we doing it just for them to pass the exam are we doing it for a life skill that actually the stuff that I'm teaching you here, you can use in the outside world, you can use in your real life, you can use um, to, you know, you can use to change the world. And I think it's about the narrative that we have in terms of how we see our learners in the sense that are they the people that we just pour information in and that's it? Or is it a thing where we're trying to draw stuff out, to draw that talent out, unleash that talent so they can actually create a bigger impact? So that's my kind of framing in terms of how... I see students and learners and how I see them as not just um, consumers of education, but also contributors. And as contributors, one of the, one of the things you, you suggest that we do is group work, getting students to, to work in groups. So from, from your experience and thinking that you've done that in, in a school setting, how diverse did you try to to make your groups or how how do they work better if they've put into a group do they work better if they're in a diverse group or in, if they're in a more homogeneous group and and that's that's interesting because that's how sometimes education is formed in terms of is it 
our money is the, the is the group's biased. <laughs> Are they going towards their biases or things that look like them? And then it becomes something that becomes president. But what we try and do as much is that we try and understand the students' strengths and weaknesses to see which how they will function because compared to adults students have relationship problems with each other sometimes it can be to the fact is that they may not feel safe in a group so as a teacher you've got to be able to talk to the student sometimes when we do group work we just say you go there and 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 etc so it's about having that kind of connection and rapport and communication but ultimately the reason why we why I emphasize a lot on collaboration within the book is because that's the outside world. You're always having to meet new people. You're always having to share your ideas. You're always having to work together. And the thing is, is that a lot of our learners are leaving institutions and school where they don't have that wholesome education of collaboration and working with people and having to articulate themselves and to, you know, have discussions amongst big groups and work with people that they're not familiar with. So that's one of the things that we want to emphasise a lot around this collaboration piece and why we value it within the book and so on. Thank you. And an- another thing that you you also mentioned that we should be doing while we're teaching them is to to check for understanding. Is is this something that you kind of learn how to do? Depend because probably it depends on the group of students, right? I mean, you can't you don't have this way that works for all students to check if they're understanding. They can just be bluffing. How how long does it take you to to get to know different students and to actually check that they are understanding it's very interesting you say that because now with the rise of chat gpt in terms of students just getting microwave content probably from the days of when the google first came about and they were able to do searches and get content we're now at the doorstep of learners being able to capture quick content and what we find in terms of not just about the technical ability can they explain can they like vocalize what they've done i think that's going that might come back into fashion now with the fact of automation is that okay great you can extract all of this information but to tell us what you've really learned or what you've processed explain it to us let's just double down on those soft skills that they say that our students don't have or learners don't have. Let's double down on the fact is that getting them to talk about what they're learning and being able to express themselves through that process. And I think that that, you know, is where we're at now. Probably if ChatGT uh, PTG came out, I'll probably have that in the chapter in the book too. <laughs> that's true. That's probably going to need a whole chapter just on it. And do you find, because I mean, if, while you were teaching in a school it's it's possible to 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 do that with a limited number of students did you find that you had to have different approach while you're teaching at university if you have a bigger number of students yeah so that's where you know that's where teachers and then in the book I talk about this in terms of using edtech to empower their practice and the teachers that are too old school will get left behind or the lecturers that are too old school will get left behind. It's about how can we use ed tech to um, automate some of these low state testing quizzes to check on where students are at with their learning and how they're progressing. And you could be creative. I think there's there's ways you could be creative for low uh, state testing and also the way we question. There was something in the book around how, even how we ask questions. Do we just ask it and look for a response in the three seconds? How many seconds do we wait? 
to really make sure that the student has now processed that information. It's funny because I've worked across a range of different um, settings in my life. So working in primary schools were really hands-on in terms of making sure that students grasp the concept. Secondary school, again, but in higher ed, it's more left to their individual to kind of work that out. And probably us as lecturers, we need to we need to be able to use technology to access, but with the with the uh, the assessment, it will give us a roadmap of where our students are at. Then then we can ask tailored questions. And differentiation is also another issue around that too, which we can we can chat we can we can explore a bit further. But to answer your question in terms of how you assess large uh, amounts of uh, students and to make sure that they're on the right track, I think yes, we definitely be, need to be using the power of um, edtech, and the way we use edtech and creative ways to do that is going to be the key moving forward. Yeah, because one of the things that you also mentioned is that you are particular in how you get your students to check for their sources online. You say that they should check for at least three three sources. Has that changed recently with all these advanced ways of getting information? All we would need now, apart from checking, it's now detecting. So can they detect if that source is misinformation? Is it automated or is it bias? So I think there is a there's an evolution of that because normally it would be like check free news sources. <laughs> but if the free news sources have a particular swing, could they detect within those sources any type of um, content that might be controversial and so forth? And I think that's great, right? Because as as a computer scientist, my job is not to make sure that every student becomes a programmer or coder or a technologist. It's for them to understand the world around them and for us is to help them to understand how these algorithms work, how the tech works, and how to be investigators of tech and how how these things are processed. I think, you know, there's a massive tradition that just getting into tech, you're going to be cool, you're going to create great stuff. And yeah, we want you to do that. But ultimately, it's just like a literacy now, a numeracy, where we want you to understand the world around you a bit more. And then if we relate that back into the teaching sense, that's what we want our students to be, right? Ask greater questions in the world. You know, discover greater questions in terms of how they explore uh, new challenges and new problems. We don't want our students just to, uh, or learners just to be um, consumed by the first thing they see or influenced by the first thing they see in this kind of hype tech trend. That actually, now I, I just have to ask. So how do you tell your students to realize that something is misinformation or disinformation how how do you advise them because they they have access to all these sources how can they be sure that what they're getting is actually information and not just fake news that comes down to how we help our students to filter information um how to decipher information we need to also show them good examples and bad examples because the challenge is real in the sense that it can lead to extremism. It can lead to um, them getting into real problems and, and so forth. And by us helping them to show them how to filter information, how to challenge that, will obviously help them in terms of how they kind of interpretate, process those. And, you know, there are quite a few websites and tools available now that we kind of point our students towards in terms of check a sentient analysis on stuff, whether it's a positive or a negative. If, it, if it's left or right leaning. There's quite a few things, but we need to also give students a purpose to do that because, you know, a lot of them just want to 
just consume the content and move on with their life. But actually what we're saying is, is that for you to be a great technologist or you to go out into the world and make a real impact, you need to always ask these questions and inter- interrogate stuff that you come into contact with. So, we, and that goes back to what I was saying in the book in terms of how do we really engage? How do we, what's the, what's the language we have? Is it just teaching them this technical thing or just something? How do we bring our personality? Sometimes we don't bring our personality into teaching. We leave it at home and we just come in and we just deliver the content. How do we bring our personality in that we can make it engaging so students can actually see that actually what this lecture is telling me, I need to go and do some further research or further insight that's going to help me beyond this course and beyond the the kind of uh, situation that I'm presented in. So from, from reading your book, I had the feeling that you do bring your personality into teaching. And is that the case? And if so, I mean, does being one of the co-founders of UK Black Tech influenced you, like changed the way you're teaching? Did you learn from there and adopted something? Yeah, what's super interesting um, is that when I first came into education, I was stuck in the classroom getting hammered by young people. And when I say hammered, hammered in the sense that, you know, there was challenges around the pedagogy, the assessments, the behavior, my workload, mental health, uh, my emotions, and so forth. I think what I needed to understand when I first came into the profession is that you can't be a perfectionist. You can't get everything right. There needs to be room for you to grow and the students to grow. And um, as someone who has now kind of progressed many years later and looking back on on, on, on kind of what I do now. Yes, there is an element of students want to see what you're about in terms of your experiences and, and you know, the insights that you have. But also, it's about giving them a holistic view on stuff too. I think that's one of the things that, you know, gives us that culture capital in the sense that not only can we teach a content, we can also relate that content to everyday life, what's happening in the world and give them a greater context. So that's when you bring your personality or you bring other insights or other kind of touch points into that kind of conversation to inspire them and to engage them even further. Now, off the back of that, with UK Black Tech, you've got um, UK Black Tech was formed six years ago and it was trying to address this initial problem in terms of if the UK wants to become the most innovative place in the world for tech and innovation, how can we get there without no one being with no representation being seen? So we wanted to increase that representation. But at the time, it was superficial stuff in terms of just doing an event and, you know, people talking about their lived experiences and a bit of hackathon, digital boot camps and so forth. But actually, what needed to take place with UK Black Tech and to inspire and for us to show that we're much more than just people that are marginalised or the minority within these spaces, that actually we can become the thought leaders, we can become the visionaries, we can contribute to the the evolution and productivity of the country's growth of technology and innovation. Yes, we can be contributors. Yes, we can do inventions and release patents and so forth. We don't really talk about that when it comes to the DNI piece in terms of how do we support diverse individuals to be the best they are in their field and practice. It's normally around looking at the, the problems, the issues, and don't get me wrong, we need to look at them. We need to look, look at past historical issues around that. But in terms of 
us being seen and normalizing so that it comes back to this kind of normalizing how do we normalize the perception of an innovator and through who lens dictates what an innovator or or someone may look like so yeah answering both your questions i think it's one of these things that it's much more than representation. It's much more than your personality. It's so it comes back to a perception thing. How are we perceived in these spaces? And especially if you don't look or sound or smell or taste like the person who is defining what these uh, characteristics are. Thank you. And I guess I want to I want to finish with a question from your book. One of your reflection questions, which is, how can you make your classroom more inclusive? So to make your classroom more inclusive, students want to make uh, ensure that they can bring their identity into the classroom. They've got a sense of belonging in the classroom. They're going to be acknowledged. They're going to be heard and they're given a voice. That's how you make your classroom more inclusive, by allowing the individual to be themselves. Many times we're shaping and we're molding the individual into something that they're not or they were scared. So a lot of students may be scared to bring their identity into classroom because they might be mocked because they might have an accent or they might have a, a cultural twist or whatever uh, that may be. And then the, the, then the individual doesn't bring that talent and creativity into the lesson because it might be criticised. So in, in order to create an inclusive uh, classroom, it goes down to the, the, the PowerPoint presentations. What images are we putting up in our presentations? What language are we using in our presentation? It could also go to the point of that, how do we acknowledge people that are, who don't have a voice in your classroom as lecturers? How do we give people a voice to be heard? Because many times it is that those marginalised groups, we don't give them a platform. And then that kind of may become a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of who we give the promotion or the, the the good job to and so forth later on in life. So in terms of creating an inclusive classroom, it's about creating a space and an environment where students can thrive, irrespective of their um, ability, background, race, gender, etc. Thank you so much. Thank you for the time you gave us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us there. If you're listening on Spotify, please leave us comments. You can get in touch with us via our website.